Think you need to compromise who you are to advance your career as a black or brown woman? Think again. Because there's a playbook for corporate America and those aren't the rules. But you won't find it in college or on the job. I know, because I learned the hard way. And now I'm here to show you how the game is played. Hi, I'm Linda Talaferro, the Vice President of Quality at a global technology company and founder of The Tea, The Extra Effort, where I help black and brown women like you change the trajectory of their career with one-on-one coaching, workshops, and this podcast, Being Brown at Work. If you want to know how black and brown women are navigating everything from microaggressions to being the only person of color in the room so they can blaze their trail through corporate America, listen now. Greetings, everyone. It is your girl, Linda Talaferro, Being Brown at Work Live. And yes, I'm going to say it. I say it every Tuesday. It's my favorite time of the week, Tuesdays, 630 Eastern Standard Time, because I get the most phenomenal opportunity to share with you experiences, nuggets of wisdom, things that you can really put in your toolbox along your career journey. And you can already tell, for those of you who might be out there on the book circuit and you follow phenomenal women, you might already know this phenomenal lady. And I'm not going to take much more time away from this discussion because it's going to be phenomenal. And and you might want to get pen, paper, Well, actually, you just want to go to Amazon because you're going to order this book. That's what you're going to do. But then you want to have pen and paper. So let's just duck right in. I want to introduce you to Deepa Rach. And I know, see, Prashathaman. Deepa Prashathaman. Thank you. And so you guys know I'm all about names because names are important and you got to respect and pronunciate. And Deepa is the co-founder of Information, a company for women of color by women of color. She is also a women and public policy program leader in practice at Harvard Kennedy School. Prior to the Deepa spent more than 20 years at Deloitte and was one of the youngest people and the first Indian American woman to make partner in the company's history. Deepa was also the U.S. managing partner of WIN, Women's Initiative, Deloitte's renowned program to recruit, retain, and advance women. She has degrees from Wesley College, Harvard Kennedy School, and the London School of Economics, and speaks extensively on women and leadership. Deepa has been featured at national conferences and in publications including Bloomberg, Business Week, HuffPost, Harvard Business Review, and she is also an Aspen Fellow. Deepa and her husband, Manoj, live in Los Angeles with their dogs, an endless list of home renovations. Deepa, welcome to Being Brown at Work Live. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh my gosh. I'm beyond excited and honored. I mean, everyone, you're listening to this live or you may be catching on a replay. Did you hear the list of accolades with this woman's background, the phenomenal things, the accomplishments that she has, that she has in her career? And she's going to share with us Nuggets from this. The first, the few, the only. I'm telling you, look, I'm going to show you. Okay, I've got it marked with pen. I got paper. 
this is everything. And this is what we're going to talk about uh, in this session, in this live. Uh, And I'm going to jump right in. I'm traveling. For those of you who follow me a lot, you can tell the background is different. That's because I'm traveling. Your girl's traveling. And there was something I had read in the book that just resonated with me when I experienced it. And I've been traveling for over 30 years. And I'm telling you, it never touched me or hit me as much as it did until I read Deepa's book and then had to put that darn luggage in the overhead. And there's a statement in here where where she talks about, uh, I want to make sure I found it, as women, we have to somehow figure out how to design a stowage that didn't require us to stand on our tippy toes and lift a heavy bag over our heads into the small compartment. The worry that something is wrong with us that's what resonated with me because every time I get on a darn plane and I'm listening to lifting the luggage, I'm thinking I pack too much. Mm-hmm. I'm too short. Maybe I need to lift more weights. The worry that something is wrong with us rather than the design, the system, or the process is a delusion. See, that's why you got to buy this book. And, and, and look, <laughs> that's just the beginning of the book where I read that. <laughs> Deepa, Deepa, talk to me about that. Not yeah. built for us or by us. Talk to me about what that means for us when we're trying to navigate our careers. Yeah, and it's why I love the airplane story, because I think it so phenomenally describes so many things that I think many of us feel, but we don't have words for. And that's part of what I'm trying to describe. Most women of color have been taught to lean in, to do more, to work harder. And part of what I want to explain is, yeah, you know, I, I hear you. And yes, we have to work hard and all of those things. But there's also something that's happening in the system around us that wasn't made for us that we also need to talk about and put words to. And we don't have to take responsibility for that part. Yes. That's really what I'm trying to get at. And so with this airplane, airplane analogy, what I'm describing is a conversation I had with Renee Myers. She is the VP of inclusion at Netflix and a good friend. And when I called her to interview her for the book, she was all about airplane design. And she shared with me that when her children were young, they, she used to really stress as a young mom that the luggage, why is it overhead? Like during turbulence, like is the luggage going to fall on my children's head? And she was explaining how she would white knuckle the entire flight. And I jumped in right away because when I was a partner at Deloitte, I would fly sometimes three cities a week. And so six times a week, I'm putting my luggage up, luggage down. I'm five one. And so just like you, I get there. I'm uncomfortable. I can't get it up. I'm wearing the wrong shoes. I pack too much, all of the things. And what I started to share with her is I worry about that 30 minutes before I get on the plane. And it's such a great example because that sense of not belonging that we talk about in workplaces, I feel that before I enter the plane and 30 minutes before I deplane. And that is really what we're describing that people don't understand. When workplaces aren't created for you, that sense of how am I going to maneuver that? How am I going to navigate that? What am I going to do? Starts early. And it's just this really small space that no one thinks about. And our experience experiences as two women of color, hers as a mom and me as a, uh, you know, height challenged, you know, short woman <laughs> are not the same as maybe the gentleman sitting next to me who's, you know, five, eight, five, ten, and taller. They don't even think about these things. And, and, and I know that now of having hundreds and hundreds of these discussions. Yes. And so it's just to explain that the experience is different. And when I went and did the research, I found that only two or 3% of designers were women. So it makes sense when those airplanes mm. were designed, mothers, 
women, other people weren't in those conversations. And so, yeah, it doesn't work for us in the same sorts of ways. But what's so interesting is most people like you have never thought about that until I pointed out or they've read this story. And so that's part of what I'm trying to explain that corporate America or workplaces are not meritocracies. They don't show up the same for each of us. They show up differently. And yet there's never been space to talk about that. It's almost like people get sometimes offended when I use that wording. It's like, don't say that. I'm not saying that you're wrong as a result of it. I'm saying, let's make some changes so it does work for more of us. You know, exactly in the future, let's make it better. You know, it, it, it's a conversation. It's not an accusation. So. That's it. And, and and how can you make the changes if you don't yes. share how our experiences are, if you don't talk about it? It's that fear of, oh, don't say that. Oh, I'm a, did I offend you? No, we, we need to have this conversation, which is why I started being brought at work life. I mean, it's so important. You can't, we can't shy away from it anymore. We have to bring it to the forefront. And I love how you did it. That story, like I said, that story just resonated with me. So, so Deepa, if you could share with us your experience of being the first. I mean, I read in your bio to everyone, you were the first Indian American woman to make a partner at Deloitte in its history, in its history. So share with me your experience about with being the first. Yeah, you know, I think that there was always a lot of opportunity in being a first, but I think what we don't often talk about is the loneliness or the alienation. Mm. And I interviewed over 500 women of color in writing the book. And, you know, I I talked to a lot of trailblazers. And what we don't talk about is the shadow side of trailblazing or the cost of it. And part of why I wanted to write the book in my own experience was a lot of, I mean, similar to the airplane story, a lot of what I felt or what I was trying to navigate felt like it was my own or, you know, issues with me or my own imposter syndrome. And I think so much of what happens to women of color, black and brown women in particular, is we have grown up in systems, grown not just work systems, but grown up in school systems and grown yes. up in cultures yes. where we're not seen and heard, where our voice doesn't matter, where our stories are minimized and diminished or erased. And as a result of that, I think a lot of us don't always feel like we belong. So for me, although I had a magical path and amazing opportunities, I think I was always looking for role models that looked like me. I was always wondering, do I belong in these you know, spaces, these schools that I went to, these you know, places I walked right. in, and trying to make space for my full voice and my own experience, which felt different. You know, I, I don't know that I felt so much about the women and women of color issues at work. I, my issue was much more, I made partners so young that I had a lot of ageism challenges. Oh. So I was always asked, you know, where is the partner? Where is the partner? You know, where is the person in charge? And in my clients, you know, I would always have to say that's me and really explain. And so for me, it was more of that. So I think we all have our own challenges around proving ourselves. But I think there is something about being a woman of color that exasperated that for me because I'm little, I look younger and the Asian curse of looking younger definitely came into play. And so for me, it was always, I think having to prove myself was always Mm -hmm. there, you know, this Mm -hmm. this sense of not being enough and having to really pull out my credentials or my years of experience to prove that I was actually qualified was something that followed me quite a bit with my clients. Right. And I can relate to that. And like you said, most of us, brown and black women in particular, because it's in every aspect of our lives, Mm -hmm. when we went to school, how we were raised even. Mm -hmm. I had a previous guest last week who was Philippine, and she talked about how she was raised and how that her cultural background, some it harmed her career a little bit, mm-hmm. right? And she had to unlearn something. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's that is extremely critically important. And and you shared something about proving worth and 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 things that we tell ourselves. I'm going to read another part of your book that really resonated with me. Personal delusions are just as dangerous as corporate delusions. They keep us bound in many ways, old ways of working and living. 
As women of color, they make us feel invisible. They don't allow us to be our full selves. We rarely question them. And even if we do, we are told that it's just the way things always have been. We need to find the strength to break through them so they no longer stop us in our tracks and keep us in our place. We can decide to leave them behind and rewrite our own narratives, creating a room for ourselves to be in our full power. Mm-hmm. I often talk about controlling the narrative, mm-hmm. controlling our own story, truly our own story. Deepa, share a little bit about w- with the audience one of the delusions is working hard, right? I mean, we are, and you shared a little bit of that earlier. So talk a little bit more about how that delusion can be so crippling and then maybe even how we can overcome that and find our power. Yeah. So in the 500 women of color that I spoke with, the one that came up, the, the delusion, and I, you know, I talk a lot about corporate delusions or workplace delusions, yeah. but I also want to talk about these personal delusions. These things were taught growing up. Yes. And so that's what we're talking about here. Over and over again in those 500 women, they would say to me, I was taught to work harder. I was taught to do more. It was especially acute in the black women. So the black women would tell me, I have to work two or four times as hard. That's what my parents and my grandparents and my you know friends and family yep. told me. But it was almost yep. universal in the women that I met. We have to work hard. Like, you know, because nothing is going to be given to us. We're just going to keep our heads down and work hard. And my problem with that idea is one, it sets us up for a, uh, a you know, a history or a future of overworking. It sets us up mm. to do more and do more, improve ourselves. And, nev- you know, enough is there's never enough, never enough, and yes. never enough. And it's exhaustion. It's well-being. We're sacrificing our health and our bodies in a lot of cases to do more and to outperform. And it also suggests if you work harder, it'll be OK. Back to that, you know, concept of meritocracy. And many of the women of color I meet are facing things like racism and discrimination and stereotypes and working harder isn't going to erase those things. And so I just think it sets us up in a really bad place. It's funny. I just penned an op-ed yesterday around graduation feedback. And what I'm saying in that is the most dangerous feedback we can give our newly graduating women of color is this work harder, you know, message, because I think yes. it's wrong. I just think it's, it's toxic oh in a lot of ways, right? It's so bad. And so that's really what that's getting at. And what I'm suggesting in the book and my work is really about is there are messages we need to shed because they don't serve us as women or as individuals. And that's the work we need to do. And instead, I want us to carry forth messages that do work for us, that come from our cultures and our histories that many of us have been told to put aside or to not value. So as a first generation Indian woman, there's a lot about being Indian when I was growing up in these white spaces. And again, being first generation that you're taught is not important is to assimilate is really more the message. And so you don't carry forth a lot of your culture or your history. And now as I'm in my forties and I'm looking at all that, I'm wondering where did it go? Well, it wasn't really prioritized because there was such a value placed on being American and like fitting in and, you know, being successful. And that's part of, I think, what is a lot of us are encountering that we've erased those messages, that history, those stories. And so this work is really about looking at what you've been taught and does it serve you? Does it work for you? These ideas of working harder, your definition of success, even your definition of power. What are we taught that really doesn't work for us as women and women of color? And how do we pick new definitions? So for me, for example, there was that message of working harder. Well, it caused me to get burnt out. It caused me in a lot of ways, I think, to get sick. I spent eight months in bed. And so for me, I have this new idea that health and wellness, right, have to be tied to success. Like I can no longer see myself as successful climbing whatever ladder I'm climbing if I don't have my health. And that seems so obvious to say in a emerging or post-COVID world or whatever we want to call ourselves in this middle, you know, this middle ground that we're in. But two or three years ago, 
those things were completely different ideas. I was willing to sacrifice those things to do well. And so that's part of what we need to rewrite, or that's what I'm rewriting for myself. And so again, those messages that we're taught, like not all of them work for us and where do they come from and who wrote them and who do they work for? That's what I want us to be questioning. Yeah, absolutely, Deepa. And I, and I think, you know, we have to give ourselves the power to rewrite it. Mm-hmm. We have to, we have I say to permission, us, but yes, there yes. we go. Permission mm-hmm. power to rewrite it. Right. We have to know that that is okay. And it's time to do that. Yes. Uh, you know, you talk and also in your book and your study about the burnout and, and even how the pandemic has really uh, affected us women of color, probably, I mean, affected everybody. I don't want to minimize. Okay. So those of you out here listening, please, we're not minimizing the impact on anyone else, but we have to recognize the, 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 the deep, the, the difference, I would say the nuance that it's had on women of color. Can you share a little bit more about what you learned in that, in that area? Yeah, I think, you know, one, there's a lot of data out there that suggests women of color were on the front lines of caretaking a lot Mm -hmm. of the first, you know, not not first responder roles, but a lot of the caretaking roles, right, Right. in in ways that we haven't really understood. Um, And even just the child care responsibilities as there was, you know, extra burden placed on, on, you know, systems that were crumbling in that space. And so I think that's one area that you see. I also think that right now, the last few years have been especially burdensome for women of color when it comes to race at work or culture building at work. So you have the pandemic happening, which is already putting an extreme pressure on workplaces and culture. And then after George Floyd's murder, the burden that we've placed, especially on Black women, but I would say Black and Brown women, to talk about culture and really change conversations around race at work, those things coming together, I would say, have placed a really strong extra burden, a real um, spin on a lot of the women of color I work with around all the extra things that they're being asked to do. And even, I would say, maybe a new questioning. You know, I interviewed a number of um, therapists and a number of doctors. And one of the things Mm. that they shared with me is that as a result of us starting to acknowledge that there is racism at work, a lot of women of color, in particular, black and brown women who've maybe taught themselves or convinced themselves that, you know, it's just me or it's not really there. They're now allowed to say racism exists at work and they're starting Mm. to feel it in their bodies. And so these doctors are telling me there's a big difference between kind of denying exists, no, kind of knowing it exists, but denying it exists, and then having people agree with you that exists. It's almost that process of the grieving process is in a different yes. stage for many of us. And that's actually why some of the doctors told me they believe women of color in particular are feeling not only burnout, but trauma in a very different yes. sort of way, because that acknowledgement of something that they've denied for so long, even though they knew it was there, is now being validated. And it's a yes. very different sort of feeling in our bodies. And that's really what's happening to them. Extreme difference in our bodies. Mm-hmm. And I know personally, having the pressure of being constantly asked, okay, what do we need to do? Mm-hmm. Or Linda, can you be on this team? Or can you, I mean, after a while, I had to tell them, stop, don't ask me anymore. So yeah, that trauma of now saying, okay, I've always known it. Now you're recognizing it. And then on top of that, you you think I you come to me to represent everything and 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 check the box. That's the that's part of the challenge I have with all of these chief DEI mm-hmm. roles, right? We need them. Don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. but it, it that's not enough. And I know yeah. you talk about that in your book as well. That is not enough, right? Just yeah. to say now you have someone in the seat that has that title. I mean, it, it, we have some deep issues of which now you still aren't really ready to talk yeah. about. <laughs> you know, and you want you really... want black and brown women, especially yeah. black women, to come and save you again, right? It's back to that one yes. woman is going to come solve that. And so, yes, yes, all of that. 
Mm-hmm. All of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so Deepa, you know, and I knew this was going to happen. <laughs> oh, I knew it was going to happen. I want to talk to you now for the next hour, but I can't, but what I wanted to, I want to touch a little bit on uh, what you just mentioned, you know, the trauma that's associated, what I share when people constantly come and ask, but the, you know, let's, let's really peel back that onion a little bit more. And let's talk about microaggressions and macroaggressions. You know, what would you say based on your experience and the people that you've spoken to, even if you talked to the doctors about this, which I'm sure you probably did, but the women that you spoke to, what's the best way to respond to these microaggressions and macroaggressions? Yeah, I think one is, you know, and I've got, I've learned this over time. It's deciding what your boundaries are. So I don't want women of color to respond to every single thing that comes up. And and I also want to say for your listeners who are not women of color, I sometimes now will say like, you're going to face a microaggression or racist incident in the next six weeks or six months. And women will stop me and say the next six days, right? Or the next Mm, six hours. I think we underplay how often it happens. So it is a constant, if not daily sort of situation for many of us. And so I want to acknowledge that up front. Um, so I, I really do encourage women of color to you know pick their battles because you can't be speaking up all the time, every time that that is really hard on us. But in the times where I usually sit for 10 minutes, so if someone says something and it bothers me, I will wait for 10 minutes. If I still feel crappy or if I have that like feeling in my stomach, that fluttery feeling in 10 minutes, I will usually say something because I know I'm going to carry it forward. Right. And the yeah. data suggests that we hold on to negative comments four times as long as positive compliments. Mm. And so that is why it's so important to do something is otherwise as women of color, one, we're going to wonder if that really happened is something yeah. that happens universally. We're yeah. going to feel the shame and pain from it. And then we're going to end up carrying it for the next four or five days, worrying about like, why didn't I do something? Or did I say mm-hmm. the right thing? What yep. I encourage women of color to do is to really practice what they're going to say. You know, like, so for me, it used to be around age. I know on a daily basis, and even today, I'm probably going to comments of, oh, you're younger than we thought, or, you know, you know, oh, whatever, it's going to show up. I have something that I say, you know, oh, that's interesting. You know, well, I'm probably older than you, you know, or whatever that looks like, but have those things practice so that when you have that happen to you, when you have that microaggression happen to you. So for a lot of the, I was just speaking at an AAPI event earlier today. So a lot of us will be asked like, oh, English is, you speak English so well, where did you learn English? Well, I was born here, right? So practice what you're going to say to that. I was born here. You know, well, you speak English very well, too. You know, whatever that is for you, literally write it out and practice saying it. Because what happens in those moments is we are shocked. We're stunned. We Mm. kind of are not in our power. And then we regret not saying the things we wanted to say. So when you're in a moment of calm, figure out what you're going to say and literally practice saying it out loud. You know, the other fascinating thing I found, Linda, is that most of us, including the black women that I interviewed, because I would assume it would have been different for black women. Most of Uh us did not talk about race at work growing up. So we may have talked about race, but most of us did not talk about how to deal with race at work. We were just taught work harder. And so we get into these situations and then we're stunned when it's happened. We maybe have expected it to happen, you know, on the corner, Mm -hmm. at the corner store or walking down the street or in certain environments, but not at work. And so right. we need to practice what we're going to say so that we just feel like we're in our power in those moments. Exactly. Exactly. There's one part in your book, and, I, and I'm going to read this because I want people to understand different types of microaggressions, right? Mm-hmm. It not be, you know, oh, you're so young or where did you learn how to speak? But it could be this. It says most of, uh, most of the extra tasks we are expected to do at work are unpaid and not something our peers are ever asked to do. The women I met feel like these tasks come with the job and are the price of admission, but they shouldn't be. They are many housekeeping and pink chair roles. I love that. 
like culture building activities that women of color are told to take on. Pink chair roll. Pink chair rolls are non-revenue generating, non-responsibilities outside of HR. Women are t- take on these tasks, find themselves working, what amounts of unpaid second shift and so forth. And that adds to the mm-hmm. pressure, to the trauma. To, that's microaggressions too, mm-hmm. ladies. Yep. Okay. It may not be asking you, well, your hair is different or you learned how to speak, but where did you speak? Oh, you're so articulate. It may not be that. It could be the pink chair rolls. Okay. Those are microaggressions, those unburdened tasks that not our responsibility. So I just wanted to share some more nuggets from this phenomenal book. So Deepa, as we, as we're about to to wrap our session here, you know, I always want to make sure that I leave my audience with tools, with things, steps they can take, what can they do? And and really what I want to focus uh, the end of our session around taking our power back, right? Really creating our power at work, rewriting the rules of the game as one of your chapters mentioned in your book. So if you could share with us, I know deeply that you have new rules that mm-hmm. you've come up with, four new rules. So if you could step us through those, yep. that would be phenomenal as we wrap this session. Yeah. So one of the things that came up as I interviewed all the women is that we had such a fascinating um, relationship with power. When I would say, what do you think of power? Most of the women would sit back in their chair, or they would recoil. And so it wasn't necessarily a great relationship. There was this mm-hmm. negative association with power in women of color. And so I wanted to unpack that because most of us, again, have been taught what power is from these handful of books, right? Power is top down, power is aggressive, power is take all, it's competitive, it's eat or be eaten are these kind of slogans we've all been taught. Mm -hmm. And yet Mm -hmm. we don't ask like, who who does that serve? And what is that really the case? And so what I wanted to do was to really write a new definition of power that worked for us, a new kind of relationship that women of color could have with power. And when I would ask women of color, so like, what, how do you want power to be? Or what could it look like? I would hear things like it's inclusive, it's expansive, it's power for good, it's power for all. And so I started in the last chapter to lay out some new principles of power. And I started with four. And one is that, you know, power can, one, power can be redone. And so this idea, many of us have been taught, we just have to inherit the systems around us. We just have to accept how things are. And I interviewed uh, a lobbyist, a black lawyer and lobbyist and judge, uh, Marion. She said to me, have you ever heard the saying, long live the king? And she said that that used to be said in olden days when a king dies and a new king is put into place. And that is the transition of power in those words, right? A king has died, long live the king. And she said that is people giving power to the institutions, power to the process. And we have that power. And we had this really amazing conversation about anything that has come before can come, you know, can be redone or can Mm. can be undone. And so that's one of the Mm. definitions of power. Another idea is that for women of color, I believe power from the inside or personal power is the most important kind of power and that we need to remember that, that it's not the power seat that's the most important because I interviewed a lot of women of color that were sitting in power seats and yet not feeling powerful because they had conformed and absorbed Mm. and erased. And so power from the inside, how you define that, where it comes from, your inner strength, your inner definition, your inner confidence is the most important thing. Another is um, I interviewed Stacey Brown Philpot, and she said to me her family had just gotten a dog the week that I interviewed her, a puppy. 
And she said she did not want the puppy. Like she was not excited about the puppy. Um, it was the rest of her family that wanted the puppy, but the puppy followed her around compared to the other family members. And she was fascinated by that. And she said, I think it's because I set boundaries, but I'm also approachable. And we had this really fascinating conversation about maybe power is really about creating safety and leader followership. The power is not top down. Power is not about doing it to people. It's about right. creating spaces, yes. you know, and so as leaders listening to this, this conversation, maybe it's about creating spaces where women of color and people of color can be in full voice, can express themselves, can tell you what's not working. And I would tell you right now, very few workplaces are like that, yeah. um, you know, and really yeah. thinking about that differently. And then finally, like I have, you know, the first one I start with is that power is, is available to all. We don't have to accept those definitions of those 12 books that we've all been taught. And so it's this idea that power really is um, something that can be reshaped and can be used for good. And I think in this moment, more than ever coming out of and emerging from COVID where we're questioning everything about yes. who the species yes. and who we are as people and the space we want work to take up in our lives. This is the moment to talk about power and how do we want to use it and what are we using it for? And, you know, a lot of the women of color I interviewed and spoke with also said that their success and their power was collective. It wasn't just about me getting to the seat. It was about who else was I bringing with Can me? I bring, oh, yes, yeah, yes. such a key part. And so it is. it is different for us. Power and rising and success are different for us because of the communities we've come from, but we haven't really figured out how to bring that fully with us. And so that's what some of the conversation I wanted to break open was as I concluded the book. So it's just a start of the, of the rules of power that I think will work for us, but I'm hoping it starts a conversation about what do we want power and success to look like and how are we going to make it look that way as all of us are starting to really sit exactly. in the How are we going to rewrite the game and rewrite those rules? Because we can, to yes. your point. It can change. It was Deepa, this was phenomenal. This was just excellent. I am so honored. Thank you for spending time with me today. Look, those of you, if you're catching this live, we'd love to see your comments. If you're catching this on the replay, put some comments in there as well. Deepa can be contacted on LinkedIn. You look, you definitely want to go pick this up. No, I'm telling you, no doubt about it. Pick it up. It'll be so worth it. As I shared with her, I found it extremely valuable because it gives you some hows. It's not just the what's, but it, and even some why's, but it gives you the how, which is so, so important. Deepa, again, thank you for taking time out of your busy, busy schedule to spend it with Bam Brown at Work Live. Uh, I am forever grateful, forever grateful for this. Thank you for having me. Such a great conversation. Thank you. Wonderful. Take good care now. Okay, everyone, until next time. If you found this podcast empowering and are ready to master the skill that can take you anywhere, get my free guide, Workplace Confidence, in the resources section of this episode.